0: Hello. You're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Good morning. We're observing Daibosatsu Mandala Day today spiritual interrelationship day. As Soa Nakagawa characterized it 93 years ago when he asked Nyogen Senzaki to join him in bowing to each other across the Pacific Ocean and in chanting the 25th chapter of the Lotus Sutra, and as we have just done, the Great Compassionate Durrani, the Great Light Durrani, and Namu Dai Bo Sa, the ripple effects of their bowing and chanting have spread far and wide, and their Dharma teachings have rooted Zen practice deep in American soil. Sometime before his death, Senzaki left this instruction. Friends in Dharma, be satisfied with your own heads. Do not put on any false heads above your own. Then, minute after minute, watch your steps closely. These are my last words to you. Learning of his dear friend's passing on May 7th, 1958, Soen Roshi wrote Nyogen nyoho Like a phantasm, like dharma, please guide us on our path and in our practice with all your might please give us your encouragement in our pursuit of Buddha's incomparable way and he composed this haiku cries of grief have ebbed Here it stands, Mount Fuji, in May. Yogan Senzaki's unquenchable spirit was birthless, deathless. Here it stands in the burgeoning spring, in the fullness of summer, in the falling leaves of autumn, in the bare branches of winter, continuing to guide us all. Minute after minute Watch your steps closely. As we see the pandemic beginning to ebb in mostly vaccinated areas, there's a cautious feeling of optimism. Yet... There is also an unmistakable undercurrent of grief and dread that touches us all. Cases and deaths are rising around the globe. Breakthrough infections are occurring even among our own dear Sangha members. We cannot forget the 600,000 plus lives lost to COVID just in the United States alone. And the many deaths from other causes during this past year and a half, nor can we ignore the ever-worsening environmental devastation of our planet. As floods have resulted in uncountable dead and missing in Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, and other parts of Europe. As intense heat has killed hundreds in Canada and the Northwest. United States. Yesterday evening through today is the solemn commemoration of Tisha B'Av, the Jewish day of lamentation for the destruction of the first and second temples in Jerusalem, the first in 586 before the common era, the second 70 in the common era, and for exile and enslavement, and for all those murdered ever since in the Crusades, pogroms, the Holocaust, and other waves of anti Semitic violence, as we remember. On this day of lamentation, which began yesterday evening, a local rabbi, David Kunin said recently, we desperately need to realize our interdependence and the ultimate unity of everything. And everyone, the ultimate importance of peace in our lives and the lives of everyone on earth. So we need to learn the lessons of past devastation because. The earth is crying out for us to change our ways. Our relations are crying out to us. Look at your thoughts, words, deeds see how they are affecting us, we cannot ignore the effects of human disregard, greed, anger, and ignorance. Yesterday was also the 45th anniversary of the death of my brother, Jonathan Shayat. It was July 17th, 1976, just 13 days after the formal opening of Daibosatsu Satsuzendo. That weekend, my sister and I had gone to visit our parents who lived in Forestburg, New York, which is just a little over an hour down the road from DBZ. My stepfather's birthday was that weekend, so when we heard a car turning into the driveway, we thought it was our brother coming from Syracuse to celebrate. It turned out to be a police car. An officer informed us that Jonathan had been killed in an accident. We found out that he and his girlfriend had been riding their bicycles back from Pratt's Falls. He went down the steep hill that crosses Route 20, a country road, and was hit by a speeding driver three years younger than he. Now, the policeman said, One of us had to go to the coroner's office to identify the body. My parents were in no condition to do that. Nor was my sister. Was I? I had to do it. So I drove up to Syracuse. I was brought into a drab cinder block room with flickering fluorescent lighting. And someone pointed to a man lying on a gurney. There was a glass barrier between us. Who was that grown man with a full beard, wearing jeans and a plaid shirt, immobile yet Seemingly about to get up. Was it really my brother? How could I say for sure? I couldn't even say if it was dead or alive. Lying there behind that glass. Alive or dead. It was like case fifty five of the Blue Cliff Record. Dogo's I would not tell you. Dogo and his disciple Zengen went to play to pay. A condolence call at a family's home. Zengen hit the coffin and asked, Alive or dead? Dogo said, I won't say alive and I won't say dead. Zengen asked, Why won't you say? Dogo said, I won't say. I won't say. Halfway back on their journey home, Zengen said, Master, if you don't tell me, I'll hit you. A dogo said, Hit me all you want, but I still won't say. Zengen struck dogo. Later, after Dogo passed away, Zengen related this story to Sekiso, who said, I won't say alive, and I won't say dead. Zengen asked, why won't you say? Sekiso said, I won't say i won't say at these words and this time zengen had an awakening alive or dead the question goes to the heart of this matter. Zingen yearning desperately for clarity, for peace of mind asked again and again, alive or dead. Note the or. and the answers, both from Dogo and from Sekiso. I won't say alive and I won't say dead. Note the end. What is life? What is death? My brother was flying down a hill one minute and a corpse the next. You may remember Dogen's famous life, death, fascicle in the Shobogenzo that goes Life is a temporary condition, always already with its before and after. Therefore, in the Buddha Dharma, life is beginningless. Death, too, is a temporary condition also with its before and after. Thus, death is deathless. At the moment of life, Dogen said, there is nothing but life. At the moment of death, there is nothing but death. Therefore, when there is life, just let life be life. When death comes, face it and offer yourself nothing but death. And who dies? Who was it lying there? Please identify the body, I was told. Identify. If that was my brother, I wanted to go through that glass barrier and hold him. It wasn't possible, and it wasn't possible to tell the coroner, I won't say, even though only that response felt true. How could I answer yes, it's my brother, or no, it isn't? Yet I had to answer. As Dogen said, when death comes, face it and offer yourself. A paper form was thrust at me. I was representing the family in this two-dimensional, limited world, with its glass barriers It's provisional realities. I had a job to do. So I dutifully signed on the dotted line and walked out feeling that was not that. I knew the truth of his life and death lay beyond any barrier, any words on a piece of paper. A month later, Lou and I moved to Syracuse. We ended up living in Jonathan's university-area apartment for a year. I tried to learn about him in the interwoven presence and absence of that apartment. I hadn't really been able to spend much time with him after his childhood He was only six when I left for college. And for many years, we were kept apart by difficult family circumstances. So that first year in Syracuse was a time of connecting with my brother through sitting, Through dream states, through darkness, I had to enter into that beginningless, deathless realm. Somewhere in a closet in the attic, I still have a self-portrait I painted in the apartment that captures that time of no knowing. Life, death. Jonathan lived on the fast track during his 20 years as though he knew he didn't have much time. He lived each and every moment to the fullest. And of course, it was the velocity of his life, hurtling down that hill, crossing that road, that brought the moment of death. He finished high school in three years, then did the same at Syracuse University, graduating cum laude while working several jobs as a photographer, a carpenter. He played clarinet and saxophone in area jazz groups. He created sculpture in metal He immersed himself in philosophy, in literature, in the arts. He loved the outdoors and took many long bike trips through the Northeast and Canada. And even as a young boy, really young, he was fascinated with the way things worked machines, tools, and he would take things apart to find out. I remember once we had dinner guests. My mother put all the serving dishes on a cart and began wheeling it into the dining room when, with a great clatter, it collapsed. Evidently, he hadn't quite finished putting it back together. He was passionate about music and had perfect pitch. Even before he could speak, he sang. He wrote an opera when he was six, composing arias to a children's book called The Most Beautiful Song in the World. After his death, Our parents established the Jonathan Chea Memorial Award at Syracuse University. They're gone now, but each year the award in his name continues. My brother's life continues. I work with a committee to select the most promising candidate and sometimes one of them writes to us. In 2002, we got a letter from someone saying, I want to thank you with everything I have inside for the honor of receiving the award. Just when I was starting to lose a little faith in my ability to make a difference, you've done a wonderful thing for me reminding me that how I think and act is important. The question I now ask myself isn't, will I make a difference? It's, what difference will I make? Jonathan's generous way of living will serve as a beacon for me, directing my steps toward a future of unselfish devotion to people who need help and to creating images that will help them. So some of us here today are in our 20s or 30s, Some are in our 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. What can we say about our brief and mysterious visit in this human realm, in this vast? cosmos, what difference will we make to the beings we live among and to those yet unborn? Let's look at the last part of case 55 that I referenced earlier. One day, Zengen, carrying a hoe, went up and down the Dharma hall as if he were looking for something. Sekiso asked, What are you doing? Zengen said, I am searching for the relics of our late teacher. Sekiso said, Mighty waves roll far and wide. Foaming billows flood the skies. What relics of the late teacher are you searching for? Zengen said, it is what I need to do. Tai Gen Fu said, the late teacher's relics are still there. Searching for the relics of our late teacher. Can we, in fact, find any such thing? Some leftover traces, shining bones within the ashes to be placed in a reliquary and worshipped? The Dharma ocean is limitless, ever-present, from the heavens above to the earth below. Don't you hear those thunderous waves? Our late teacher, our brother, Sister, mother, father, child. They are traceless and they are everywhere. Zengen's response to Sekiso expresses his realization in activity. It is what I need to do. It is exactly what we are doing here and must do. How do we live? How do we make a difference? What difference will we make? How do we respond to suffering? We must search and search. Searching itself is requiting our dharma debt to our beloved late teacher. Searching itself is carrying forth the teachings and Renewing our vow, searching, is thanking. So we sit, we bow, we walk up and down the Dharma hall of our lives, we dig and dig, searching. We are never apart from our late teacher. He, she, they are still here. And you, sincere seekers of the way, you True practitioners, as Daito Kokushi said, as long as you devote your time to digging into this matter, you will never be apart from me. You are a true student of dharma who requites the beneficence you have received. This has been a Zen Studies Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org/donate. Thank you for listening.